0: Okay, welcome to the session after afternoon tea. Um, in this room, we're talking about scaling and viability for regenerative grazing, and we have two speakers: uh, Dick Richardson in the blue jumper, and he uh, his business is called Grazing Naturally, and Tom Bradman, um, who is Nomad Farms. And um, each of them are going to speak for fifteen minutes, and then open it up to questions uh, from you guys. Um, so welcome, Tom and Dick.
1: Thanks, thanks, Anne Marie. Um, I'll I'll start off, and then we'll. Go to, go to Dick and then some questions. Um, I won't spend too long introducing myself. I'm Tom. Um, I run Nomad Farms. Some of you came out to our place yesterday. Thanks very much for coming out um, and sort of supporting and having a look at what we do. Basically, we're a mainly beef and poultry uh, enterprise, um, and really the poultry's the main kind of backbone operation or enterprise, that we run. Um, and so I guess uh, the way I see today, or this session going, is I'll talk a bit about poultry, particularly around scale and viability of a broiler operation, um, Dick will cover, sort of, I guess, more, yeah, cattle, sheep and other meat sort of production grazing enterprises. Um, but we've sort of each had a bit to do with both so um we can we can bounce things things around a bit essentially, I'm looking at us as a bit of a case study um you know in december twenty fifteen, we did a batch of seventy five birds um, sort of pretty much killed them and ate them with friends um at a little music festival we held fast forward to twenty nineteen this year we'll We'll do about, um, yeah, roughly 15,000 birds plus heritage birds plus quail. Um, heritage birds and quail are, are sort of smaller burgeoning enterprises. Um, th- that's not me trying to big note the fact that we're doing 15,000 birds. It's just to sort of say, well, we've, we, we started with uh, absolutely microscopic sort of enterprise, you know, really felt our way through it. Um, and then have scaled up, and there are a whole lot of issues and decisions and bits and pieces along the way um, that that I'll I'll talk a little bit about that might be relevant to other people who are are going through uh, a scaling process or maybe they're thinking about how to negotiate their way through a bit of a scaling process. Um, So there's a lot of different ways to structure this, but I thought about... uh, I think about costs a lot, so, um, you know, there's sort of, as I see it, I mean, the main costs are, you you know, capital and overheads, and I'll talk briefly about them, but not a lot, um, for reasons which I'll explain. And then, and they're they're basically a fixed cost, and then there's variable costs, and there's two, there's sort of two types of variable costs, as I see it, um linear variable costs which don't really change per unit with scale and then there's exponential i mean they're just names i don't know if anyone else uses those names for costs but that's sort of the way i think about it exponential variable costs they change with scale per unit so i'll i'll explain that in a minute so you know capital costs look our business is pretty um I suppose it's a pretty low cost of entry business model, you know it's the salatin salad and pen thing. it costs us i reckon uh four four or five hundred dollars to build a to build a shelter um you know we started with two plus a little brooder I built you know apart from the fact that we do own the land and that's specific to our context and whatnot and that's a whole other story um but we run it on about twenty acres you know we could go and find 20 acres of of land that someone wanted to be radically fertilized and still get to graze i think probably pretty easily so i'm not going to worry too much about going into all of that land access um capital cost stuff cuz i think that that can be kept pretty under control um i'd like to talk a bit more about the variable costs so the two types i identified linear and exponential linear i see as things like you know, costs for day old chicks, whether you're raising a thousand of them or 10 of them, you're going to pay roughly the same. You're, okay, you might get small quantity discounts above a certain amount, um, but essentially it's going to be be the same. We pay $1 a dollar a bird, for example, plus GST um, for our chicks, and that's the same whether I buy 50 of them or 500 of them. Um, feed is another one, totally linear. You know, the biggest, independent free range producer in South Australia um, who does a few thousand birds a week at the same abattoir we use, he pays pretty much the same per kilo of feed that that we do so it really doesn't, you know that doesn't change. I mean if you start, if you're buying 20 kilo bags of course you're going to pay through the nose but once you're buying in the tons of feed, you know we go through about a ton and a half of feed a week Um, you know the per kilo cost is far far more dependent on the you know, international grain price than it is on how many birds we produce. So that doesn't really change. Processing again, you know, and we wouldn't get a discount if we started producing another 500 birds um, on a per-bird basis. So those costs just are what they are. Scale doesn't, isn't that significant. Um, so you can sort of put, obviously they're very significant costs, you know, we, we spend 100 grand a year on feed and all sorts of money on processing and whatnot. But you can put them aside a little bit in the scale discussion, because there's not a lot short of starting additional enterprises, which I'll touch on later. Um, there's not a lot we can do about those costs. They are what they are. The exponential costs, which I've, I've identified the three main ones: transport, labor and marketing, they change quite significantly with scale. Um, you know, perhaps. The best example I can give is we have to travel about 300 kilometres round trip to do the to do the bird processing. Um, you know, that's, and it's sort of 12 hours, 300 k's, that's roughly a $500 exercise on 60 66 cents a kilometre and, you know, 25 bucks an hour um, labour. So that $500 exercise, obviously it doesn't include the kill fee, but... When we did the first batch of seventy-five birds, that's six dollars sixty or something like that per bird, um, which is just radical. Like, there's you know you can't make money um, on that. You just can't pass those inefficiencies on to, to consumers um, with a straight face. Um, one hundred you know when we started doing 100 batches of one hundred and fifty birds, we're paying you know that half paying three dollars thirty transport up to the abattoir and back. That becomes something that's not as radical. Now that we're doing 300 birds in a batch, it's $1.65 transport. Um, you know, if we, do, if we double that again to 600 birds, which is a massive production increase, you know, you get into that law of diminishing returns. It's only going to be, you know, save us 70, 80 cents a bird um, to double production again on that. For that particular item, for that cost item, so scale really helps initially on that line item, and then it, the scale, the benefits of scale, tail off quite quite quickly. So identifying those costs um, and where scale helps you, and to what point it really helps you before diminishing returns really kick in, I think is quite quite important. Um, Labor and marketing are, are somewhat similar. They follow a curve, so you get some really big gains from scale and then it drops off quite a bit. Um, we can talk a bit more about any of that stuff with questions. I'm quite open about our economics and pricing. I wanted to give some examples now, but I don't want to just sit here and throw a million figures at you. So ask whatever you want to ask with, with questions. Um, if, I, if I can't answer it, I won't. While I'm on labor though um, and while I've still got time before the bells start ringing and I run out of time, I did want to talk about labor and scale, and it's sort of a complicated issue, obviously you know we took a we took a big jump with labor we very specifically wanted to employ um, a person and yeah well most of you know Luke anyway, but he's here, and you know he was in a full time job. we really wanted to employ him, so we wanted to give him a full time job. It was getting to a point where the business was far too much for me, but we needed to take a big jump up so that we could essentially you know generate enough turnover to employ someone full time um that kind of worked out. I mean, it was lumpy for a little while because we did it in a short space of time and it was a very big jump in production. But it was, it was very worthwhile for us. Um, and I guess with our enterprise being seven days a week, thinking, talking about scale and viability, the human element and the extent to which you can keep doing something for a number of years without completely burning out, is so significant. So for us, a massive issue to do with scale and viability is how big do we need to be to run a business that is able to support more than just one or two people and able to rely on more than just one or two people because the things that are fun and exciting and working all night and going crazy in the first couple of the years, which is, you know, all romantic and invigorating because you're doing what you've been dreaming of doing you know what's great in those first couple of years and that workload is just debilitating and wearing in the fourth and fifth year of a business right so you really need a road map through i think to say well where does our scale need to get to by the time by the time i'm risking burnout to to bring some other people on so that you know the whole thing doesn't just implode um, because otherwise, yeah, you're just not gonna you're not gonna stay in business. So, um, yeah, for us, that's something my wife Verity and I talk about quite a lot: the social sustainability, social viability of it, as you know, in a very personal, personal sense. Um, At what point was that to Basically, we. We were doing batches... Oh, look, in a nutshell, it was roughly 250 birds a week. But, you know, that... So, I did this exercise the other night because I couldn't remember where we'd... Like, it's a bloody blur the last few years. But, um, yeah, so t- I worked it out and I uh, worked this out by looking back through old photos... 2015 we had two pens and we were using the crazy Joel Salton thing with a bucket of water on the pens and he still has never sold me on why the hell you'd do that. But um, So we automated that pretty before we built anymore. But yeah, 2016 we then got up to six pens and we we're doing 150 birds every three weeks. So that's about a year later. We we're doing batches of 150 birds every three weeks. We we're batching that up so that, we could, you know, pay $3 transport up to the abattoir and not 6 or $8 or whatever it is. <coughs> 2017, we we're doing a batch of 225, so, you know, they're in multiples of 75, which is how many birds you stick in a pen, roughly. We we're doing 225 every three weeks, so we had nine, nine pens going at any one time. So we then tripled production to 225 per week, In December two thousand and seventeen, we took on a couple of big clients. um, One restaurant in particular, and that worked. We don't supply them anymore because the price just sort of—it was fine. It helped us scale up, and it was turnover. But it was never. It didn't really have a longevity because it was. We're treading water on that deal a bit. Um, Thanks, Emery. So, yeah. Look, we managed to do that at about the. Yet yeah, I suppose 250 birds in a in a batch or in a, in a week, but we're still moving. Sorry, we're still moving to an to, to a point of greater efficiency with that. So we're now about 300 birds a week, um, and that supports that supports Luke a bit of casual employment and um, and my time, which you know I'm the owner. It's got to be a bit variable. Um, but it's not, a, it's not quite full-time. It's not full-time for both Luke and I on the 300 birds a week, but we do beef and other, you know, so there's, there's all sorts of other stuff going on. Um, on that, I suppose there's a few other little points about what we did. I'm not saying what we did was perfect, but a few decisions we made which I've learnt from. One was things like, Okay, so how can we manage the, how can we manage the lack of scale and still just not be completely unprofitable? Because, um, and I need to talk about price setting to 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 talk about this. I firmly believe that we've got a product that's reasonably good value if you appreciate what the product is and how to use it. But. It wouldn't be, it, it, we just couldn't offer it at, at good value if we were doing 100 birds a week. It wouldn't be possible. And I believe that you can only, as a small producer, pass on so many of your inefficiencies um, to the end user. So we sat down and worked out our costs, worked out what margin we wanted to make on, on that, worked out roughly what size we wanted the business to get to in a medium term, you know, within a few years. Where does that punch us out with costs? okay, that's what we set our prices on. We didn't set our prices on making money or making a particular margin when we started with 100 birds a week. And we don't want to set it on what we're going to be doing in 10 years' time because it's too far down the track. We'll have run out of money by then. So we sort of use medium time frame, what margin we want to make, what are our costs. We set set the price, offer it to the market. And as I see it, if you go through that process and... You can you sell it. You can sell at that price. That's great. If you can't sell at that price, you've basically got three options: you s- stop trading, you cut wasted value, so you stop doing things which aren't of value to your consumers, and therefore reduce your costs, or you better communicate your value proposition to your consumers simply going out there and saying well this is how much chicken organic chicken or whatever it is in the marketplace this is how much that costs that's how i'll set my cost and work backwards to me that's bonkers um yeah we we so i think that's quite an important pro the cost-setting process i think is is really um really significant um What else do I really want to touch on before I have to hand over the mic to Dick and you'll forget about me? Um, We also have only ever offered whole birds and that to me is significant. We do cuts at the market because people want cuts at the market, that's fine, but wholesale we just I mean we've probably dished out dished up a lot of a lot of clients that we could have could have had. But I'm just not willing to operate with the waste and inefficiencies of trying to deal with all sorts of bits and pieces and cuts. And so for us, like that's another way we've managed to remain, I guess, fairly lean with our costs um, and whatnot. Obviously, back when we only did a few, we did you know a batch every three weeks. A lot of what we were trading was frozen. Um, a lot of chefs were cool with that. A lot of consumers were cool with that. We couldn't hit any of the fresh weekly markets, which we do now, um, but we had to do that to be viable um, at that lower scale. Um, now we've got other options with weekly, weekly fresh birds. Um, there's a lot of weaknesses with our with our business. Um, you know, the grain use, like we don't use certified organic grain. It's very expensive, and it's, it lives interstate. Um, that's a big ecological black mark on us. Um, I think the amount of our, our grain consumption. I'd love to do something about that, but there are, you know, sort of there are other implications and complications with that, um, and that's why we haven't done it done. Um, you know, we're still working on. Some of our efficiencies, on-farm production efficiencies, our processing costs are quite significant, but there's very little we can do that without taking on an additional enterprise. And um, our chicks are produced using you know, shed-based breeders, which I'm not wrapped about, um, but there's a massive economic issue with us trying to... Uh, and also product consistency and whatnot issue with us trying to tackle that. So I just wanted to quickly highlight there's some big negatives that we need to work on with our business in a whole lot of those areas, but we've got to get to a certain point before we deal with those, otherwise we're just going to die the death of, you know, perfection being the goal. Yeah, just quickly.
2: Um, is micro something
1: that you're considering for the future? I might, if I can, I'll, t- I'll Write that down, and I'll address that when we do the question session. I'll hand over to Dick now, because otherwise we'll bugger up the time. Yeah, no, no worries. Um, yeah, we can cover other stuff in questions. So I'll hand over to hand over to Dick. Thanks.
2: Cheers, Tom. Yeah, Dick Richardson, and I've got a kind of business called Grazing Naturally. Work from here to Cape York, far north Queensland. I've got. Uh, three or four people working for us now as well. Basically, we're helping people in the grazing industry to make these soils deeper and more mature, and using animals to do, that, do it. That's the natural background. So it looks like I maybe have come to the wrong party here today um, because I'm actually not the the happiest message messenger... <laughs> around when it comes to when there's a heap of small-scale stuff going on. What I thought I'd do, just chuck a few numbers, and I thought I'd write them up so if you do have any wanting to write them down, you're welcome to do that. Now, before I do that, what do you want to do is the first question. We have a hell of a lot of different people teaching us about how to make decisions around towards a goal and all this sort of thing, and I think a lot of that is us about face. I think a lot of the time we've defined what the form is that we're looking for, and then we try and make functions fit in with it. The reality is we have to ask ourselves, what are the functions that you it to perform that's going to give you the quality of life you're after? Once you've identified what those are, then let form come out after it, because there's nothing that saddens me more than listening to all the stories of the small-scale producers, large-scale producers across the board, people trying to make a go of the direct marketing thing and end up killing themselves in the process. It's jolly sad. It's jolly sad, too, that we have people cranking out a lifetime of that stuff and not actually earning a living out of it. I personally think that those are the things that need sorting out. If we want to fix these kind of direct marketing things and if we want to fix production with quality of life and profitability on small areas, it's going to mean that people have to make a living out of it. There's no other way around it. This is not a... Philanthropy needs to be there, but it's in a different place, really, to you working yourself to death trying to make a living out of it. So, hopefully that doesn't upset the apple cart right up front. So... There's a bloke, I better not mention his name actually, but there's a fellow up in New South Wales. He, he's about uh, six foot six, somewhere around about there, weighs like a brick out, and uh, he calls these things here large mouthed fence, uh, fence fuckers. So basically, dealing with those things up front is difficult, right? If, if an animal eats 3% of its body mass and your average weight of cattle, from birth through to the end, is going to be around about 350 kilos, we can say that they need 12 kgs per day. Now, the little things that actually don't fuck up the fence but get through it all the time anyway <laughs> are a different set of things. And, and I guess if it's the, the boutique marketing thing, maybe wool is not quite so important, although I think wool today is... Massively important in its uh, financial game, but it, you're probably unlikely to to be doing heaps of things with wool. Although it probably bears saying, the places that I grew up on as a kid, we had 3,000 ewes. I used to get ribbed like hell at school because every single jumper I wore at school in school uniform was made at home by my mother. Or f- use the wrong color ones that were in the mob all that wool was taken home and was spun and done and the whole lot but we just stank like we were freshly out of the sheep yard but <laughs> anyway mum we had to put up with that so you know the sheep they get to 50 kilos pretty quickly which is the secret behind them so these little buggers are only going to eat two kgs per day basically what i want to just put forward is that if you want to deal with cattle it's out of the question on a small scale, OK? 12 kilos a day of dry matter. I've written down some numbers here, which um, I've worked out off um, bears, figures, etc. These fellas over here will do $30. This thing sounds like an old bed in the back room. Um, <laughs> I think that's what I've written there. About $30 kg dry matter, and that's your gross margin. I can't really talk about overheads because number of units across the bottom, I was trying to draw Tom's thing here using that old risk and scale graph. If you've got your drawings across there, because that's fundamental. If you're not going to get drawings or paid by it, laugh it off straight away. What sort of capital interest are you going to have to pay? Because I imagine that most of us are going to buy a bit of country or somehow lease it, either option. The the sad thing about agriculture all over the world is that the people who actually do the farming, now please don't lynch me, um, people who are actually doing farming are in a pauper's game. It's the landholders that have always got wealthy over time. Okay, going back across history, and it's right across the world, it's still like that. And if anybody here disagrees, just look at the returns the banks are making, who actually own most of the the land right. So you've got capital interest, you've got your overheads, and then you've got your direct costs that Tom's talking about. They're the ones that are a bit linear. In the livestock industry, a lot of those are pretty, pretty standard. I don't often think about this exponential one, which I tried to draw on there, Tom. I don't know if I got that right. But um, then your income line, and it's only once your income line on whatever number of units crosses over where the income is now bigger than all those costs that you're actually in profit. And the angle of this versus that line is going to tell you about your risk. The steeper the, they are, one, one over the other, the less risk you've got in your business. Now, I had to draw it as a low-risk one, because um, otherwise I wouldn't have fitted the picture in there. But the, the idea behind that, though, is that you, you're going to battle to get there at $30 a kilogram of dry matter when that thing's going to eat 12 kilos a day. You really are. Um, what did I write here? That's around about 360 Three sixty per head. And I think I went on to say, what happens if you take the interest of just buying the beast? Or has everybody here got livestock? They don't pay any interest on them. Because if you get interest on those, it's at about ten or twelve percent. Okay, which is gonna drop that return there. I think I got it down to about two hundred and forty bucks per head. That's after interest. And you know, you've still got all the rest of the stuff to do in there. And I can't nobody can ever quote those numbers to you because it's gonna be so different under each scenario. So my point being Cattle, although they are the most wonderful thing to deal with, unless you're doing milk, unless you're taking that milk, turning into cheese, unless you're doing all that really seasonally, and unless you're really being creative, which is a list of things I've put here, is if it's if your life is dream, is about working with cattle, go and get a job. Genuine, there's some beautiful jobs in the cattle industry. Or go and become a professional drover. That is the most beautiful job ever. If I could have had my life over, I reckon I would have done that instead of uh, driving around the country talking to people. Okay? <laughs> but the, the drover's job is just, uh, I think, is great. And then in the cattle industry, it, what are you going to sell as what what's the difference is? Because after all, most cattle are being raised. All right, you can get feedlot stuff, but it, you know, are you going to be able to feed them something special like some tasty kind of ultra-special swede or something to give it some little taste that's going to be all exciting for everyone? Or, you know what I mean? It's, is it going to be a highland beast, a highland cow grown? You, you really not. There's not... I don't think there's that much excitement in that thing. But where the upside is on all of these things is teaming up. What Tom was talking about earlier on, the teaming up is what makes things work. So-and-so takes the stock this time, so-and-so does them that time. Are you going to be able to do some services... I reckon the best livestock industry I've seen around the joint is in California, where there's a lady there with a bunch of goats. She does direct marketing of goats, but she gets paid to run her goats everywhere they go because they're doing eco-services of some sort, Um, grazing bloody gauze or cleaning up the the catchments, etc. In this country, that's a bit more tweaky because there's a hell of a lot of um, anti-cattle sentiment out there you know, for example, the people that look after the finished river catchment would much rather spend 200 grand a year on chemicals than have you run your stock there. So there's a real issue involved in that sort of thing. Right, uh, sheep, um, What? It, I forget where I am along here, 45, uh, 67. And then at the end there of the interest... I wrote it down here. Um, You At around about 120. So what was this? It was supposed to be per head, wasn't it? Yeah. These things here are much more viable. Got five to go. Cool. What about regenerative grazing? Dick, how much can I improve my outcomes with that? Well, I've got this little set of graphs here so that you've all seen them now, done, no. Um, these are really good operators, these people, you might have, might have heard of them, the Dailies from Young. Wild they call themselves. You know This is their business compared to the ones around that, regenerative graziers, regenerative croppers. Um, more or less, they've been in the top 90 percentile producers in that region, according to the bears, people doing the numbers. So that you can make a difference um, per head numbers. These are on just total income because they can't do all the gross margins and stuff. Probably ten bucks more per head, per sheep lamb sort of prices um, per head. That is, they're doing fifteen bucks more per head on wool. Income per hectare is nearly double, from seventeen dollars to thirty-eight, and chemical. And sprays is what they put it under. But these guys obviously aren't using chemicals, all using natural stuff. But they are at seven bucks less per hectare than the other people. So there's a little bit of room in there. But you know, it's still only going to be 10 to 20 percent um, game changer. So you might change these numbers slightly, but you're not going to make a huge change there. So the other number I thought I'd draw up here for you is just what about stocking rate and carrying capacity? Well, if we do kgs of dry matter produced per hectare for every 100 mil of rain, somewhere around about, I think I wrote there, 230 kgs, that number is more or less a standard number people are getting to. Um, with cell grazing and holistic planned grazing, they're getting somewhere in this mark with grazing naturally you're managing to get people to pretty easily by just tweaking what they're doing here up to around about four hundred and we've got a few outliers there are always a few outliers who are doing this very well sort of 600 to 650 and I've got a few Who've tried it with cell grazing, realistic? They've tried trying to do a little bit of grazing naturally to fix it, sort of thing. But the people who are getting around the 700 mark seems to drop off. The country gets tired. So, if you take your rainfall, your country, use those numbers and those numbers, you can get a bit of an idea of what's going to work. So, where's the joy in what this prick wanted to tell us about today? In my my take on this is the smaller the beast, the more likely it's going to be on a small scale basis. If you're going to be doing the direct marketing, there really has to be a massive point of difference which you can point at and say, this is why you need to be spending more bucks on this thing. Because if you double your, your gross margin by doing direct marketing, nine towns out of ten, my wording on it was always simple, you need a whole new enterprise to be managed for you. It takes someone right out of the business for X amount of days a week to do that, and it's freaking hard yakka. And there's animal welfare things. I've seen the most shocking things with people taking stock to the, to the abattoirs. Animal welfare stuff, perhaps go to a place that runs 40,000 head of stock and you'll find the animal welfare handling will be a million times better than where you get to one animal... Been flogged onto the back of a trailer, one animal on its own going to market is shocking animal handling. They should never go on their own. So if you're going to do that, well, you already need to get to two to go to the market together. And how are you going to get around the freeze, all the rest of it, stuff that goes with it. So the smaller the better. How many of you chaps are producing guinea pigs? (laughs) What the fuck's the matter with you? You know, that's a thing you can run on a half an acre. You could probably run 10,000 of those little buggers and they brilliant feed and they, well, I don't know who's going to do the killing of them because they're great mates. So, <laughs> hamsters, guinea pigs, all that sort of stuff. Um, the insect thing that is taking off now. What about insects? Who has producing crickets? Bugs are paying a lot for crickets, you know? Dung beetles, desperately, sorely needed across the country. Go and breed the things. Produce them. Put them out there. Oh, and you can sell them as a as a, a horse, horse's oeuvre is over there in China before you get to the main meal. The chaps will like those crickets. What are the other things? Grasshoppers. Grasshoppers, top tucker all over the joint now, taking off Var- various kinds of, of larvae and all the rest of the grubs, basically. An insect is an amazing thing. It's three different things in its lifetime. Um, does three different jobs in there. Sometimes it doesn't eat. I really think that we need to be a lot more creative than we've been. If we're going to be doing things genuinely differently and wanting to sell something directly to people, maybe these are the games that we really can't fit in on small scales. You know, the options, what does that an ad say? The options are endless or something? Yeah. Well, the rest we can cover off during the question, Tom. Um, you, you had a question there.
3: Young man okay. Um, I'm going to have to respectfully disagree with your numbers. Uh, first of all, I want to understand, if it's um, $30 a kilo, how can a cow only net you $360 a head? Um, it's kilos to draw a net. How much do they eat? How that's how much they eat in a year. That's your gross, oh.
4: no. your gross margin per kilo of dry matter.
3: But that's assuming that you're paying for your feet, correct? No. No. No.
2: No. Maybe. I'm uh, trying to explain it to you. Yeah, come on, go for it.
1: I'll just take it yeah. So, what Dick has done is written up gross margin, so how much money you're making, um, expressed as dollars per kilogram of dry matter that a ruminant eats. So a cow will eat about 12 kilos of dry matter per day. Yeah. So you'll make... Your gross margin will be... So... So... The way it's expressed there isn't you'll make $30 out of it eating a kilo of grass. It is a ruminant eats you know, 12 kilos a day. So your carrying capacity, if you've got one cow, you've got a, a carrying capacity of 12 kilos.
2: you see 12 kilos a day, okay, this here is per dry matter unit at the end of a year. So if you've carried, um, the, if that cow's eaten 12 kilos a day times 365, that's how many kilograms of dry matter she's eaten. That's one unit. That's going to be 30 kilos per kg of brown matter, but she's actually a 10 kilogram brown matter unit, which gives you $360 per year. Per year. Per year so per cow, more or less 350
3: kilos profit per year. Yeah. Gross margin profit. Um, I sell roughly, according to my calculations, per one per Uh I'm getting Obviously retail, directly to the consumer, up to 4000 per head of cattle and growing up for three years, so that's a lot a lot bigger. But the other thing that um, um, I think... You're, you're that's that's, in that's income,
2: so that's, that's, income. that's about 1200 bucks per year. Yeah. So what does it cost you to slaughter it,
3: take it to the market? $100 to slaughter it and drive to Melbourne's uh, three, four a 3-4 hour day, uh, $70 plus my time of four hours butchering three people, one day. Yeah. yeah. So you're obviously up above that mark, but if you work that backwards
2: from 4,000 down to 1,200, yes. minus all its costs of production, transport, uh, supplementation, its mother running on that country as well, it'll come back to, you might be even double that number, or even three times that number. Yes. At 240, what is that gonna be? Um, you might be at five hundred or six hundred,
3: so you'll be an outlier. This is just a national average we're talking. But about. the other thing uh, that uh, you need to consider is that uh, I I don't have my cattle for meat. I have my cattle for eggs. Yeah, they're eggs. for eggs. Yeah, because um, I need to have fresh, thin grass for it to be palatable and good for my chicken. So they're helping me with my with my chicken carrying capacity by keeping the grass low and recycling the
1: nutrients. Yeah, them. yeah, and then, and and. And that 's where it changes when you try when you have an enterprise mix I mean, and I say to people jokingly, "I raise chickens to support my beef habit you know, but it's true. Yeah. our beef operation would not work if it wasn't for our poultry operation, but because of our poultry operation, our beef operation does does work because I do the same you know we direct market as much of our beef as, as possible you know we've got whole birds going to restaurants and other consumers, that's a gateway drug, then we can upsell them to the, like, you know, boxed beef or whatever else. Um, so it's, yeah, it's great. And, look, similar sort of numbers for us, you know, 4000 $4, odd dollars for an animal, depending on all sorts of other factors. But you take all your time and everything and take us, you know, the branding costs and all the rest of it, which we can... You know, amortise across all the chicken business and whatnot. You, you know, you take all of those into account, and it's it's pretty significant. We couldn't just run a beef enterprise, and I'm not sure if no, without no. your chicken enterprise, you could run a standalone yeah, we beef could enterprise. The size of the farm, but uh, all these marketing
3: costs and all that. Like, it's really just we just send emails to people. People buy the beef. They pay online. They get it delivered. We're not sitting in the market. We're not you know, doing any advertising or anything like that. And we're definitely not spending a money on like for feed for the whole year for the 21 head of cattle, the car is probably about thousand dollars, maybe. But have got to cross your grass, though. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but if they don't keep it short, my like chickens cannot eat it. It's not palatable.
2: Yeah, that's right. So they're doing a service with us, cattle, and that'll make that cattle enterprise of yours so much more profitable to you. The uh, later on part of this discussion is how can you get these things to produce services so that that industry becomes more viable and valuable to you. You're doing it for your chook enterprise. I'm suggesting that like that discussion that was next door a few minutes ago we were sitting listening to in the grain industry, that there's a place to fill in for people under that job, that there's options there because the livestock helped turn it over. And of course the other thing that, um, that Chrisville is involved in is the vineyard industry. So the service of basically cleaning up and tying up up vineyards, absolutely.
3: So yeah, small scale is viable if it's stacked with other functions. If it's stacked with other functions, very good point.
2: Yeah, yeah. No worries. Yeah. So Yeah, I was just going to sort of make a similar
4: probably point to Alex. We run a... We're on 69 acres with mixed uh, pasture... All, we have our own body, we have our own body, we're all direct sales, but it's, it's a CSA in sports and agriculture, so we're sold. we have a 20 year waiting list, so we spend no time on marketing. Um, and I run a 45% profit margin on Pigs and Puddle. Um, the, the, the idea that I'm be a price on the grass when what I know is how much money I have in my pocket at the end of every year, uh, it seems like really bizarre, can't do, kind of reductive and I, and I want other small growers in the room or people who are thinking of doing uh,
2: small-scale grazing to not be put off by... I mean, I feel like I'm the bee and you're the scientist telling me I'm like, not flying. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm definitely not a scientist, so forgive me for that. Um, I'm just trying to point out the realistic background to what the business is. There's going to be ways to make it more profitable, and those are the ones we're looking for. But just straight running a cattle enterprise on small scale for direct marketing... You're going to have to sell them for a massive price to make that work. Alejandro's talking at like three and a half times the market price for the animal. That's really good. Say again.
3: 26 to 24 a kilo.
2: Dollars a kilo? Yeah. Sure. Yep. 20 Minus 26
3: a kilo. 26 a kilo. kilo. Yeah. Yep. It depends on
2: the size of each customer. Yeah. yeah. And so what is the... Cut me. Cut me. Cut me. Back to the principles of this thing, though. What do you want to earn in a year? And go backwards from there. 21 head of cattle, even if they're making you that kind of money, is not going to cut it unless you're able to make that animal do other stuff or stack enterprises on your own little, um, on your block and do multiple tasks with it, if that makes sense.
3: I I had a question about
4: um, your fencing, Tom and the kind of in terms of scale, one of the things that we're finding in looking at regenerative grazing is just the overhead of putting in the fencing that's kind of recommended or in design um, for regen grazing and I wonder if you could just talk through sort of the decisions you've made, the costs and what kind of scale of land overall you think it is viable at in terms of
1: Sure, sure. Um, I'll try to make it quick. I th- yeah, the question, for those who didn't hear it, was about what sort of fencing y- is useful and necessary and how much it costs to give you some grazing flexibility. Um, I, look, I think a lot of fencing, l- l- boundary fencing, I separate boundary fencing and internal fencing into two very different categories. I think uh, most internal fencing's way overdone. Um, Cattle are very happy once they're trained to respect a single piece of, of wire. And the only reason our f- internal fences are three wire is because um, we got some sheep a few years ago. Um, before that, we were running single wire electric. <laughs> Look, uh, you know, we, you. I mean, people build these big fences and go, oh, well, the cattle stayed behind them, therefore I, I built the right fence. Well, how do you, you know, I, my take is build it lighter and lighter until you can't hold them and then you, that's your point of balance. So we spend... What a, I mean, I wasn't happy with any of our fences when we got the place, so we re-fenced it all. Um, so we put in about 14 kilometres worth of internal fencing, so I couldn't afford to spend, um, you know, some crazy figure like six or eight grand a kilometre that they spend for conventional fencing. I think our fencing, we used Kiwi Tech gear from New Zealand, um, both we use their temporary stuff and their permanent stuff, and I reckon the materials were maybe two, two or 300 bucks a kilometre, and there's a bit of labour, but the labour's pretty, it's, it's very quick, you can put up, um, the, the way we did it, we, you know, I was, once you get your line in, you, you get a line right, as in you know where you're going with it, um, which we just did with the GPS. I reckon we were knocking up, you know, sort of a kilometre a day. That sort of thing. It's pretty quick. And I just use a star dropper as an end assembly. They get a bit bent when the kangaroos fe- hit the fence really hard, but you can bend them back. And when they snap, you finally replace it with a wooden post and pull your finger out. And, um, but, yeah, look, I, you know, go, go light. Train your cattle. If you have real problems training your cattle, just put a beer can on the fence, put a bit of molasses on it, make sure it's like 7,000 volts plus and they'll soon work it out and it'll, keep, keep, them off the, it'll keep them off the booze. On, on keep yeah. And, yeah, and then, you know, I think it's... Yeah, so we designed ours with, yeah, with some big avenues and then we just divide it up with temporary stuff. But it's pretty cheap. Sorry, next question. Yeah, I'm just going to Travel. back
0: up what to Tom said and answer your question as well. The majority of our internals, single wire electric fence, um, this beef cattle obviously, it comes down to how you manage your cattle, how often they see you and whether they see you as a good person. Uh, if you have them well trained and they are well then they know that when you come, good things going to happen, they're going to get shifted. They've uh,
4: always got good water, good, water, good food, they're not going to have an issue. We put in you know, five and a bottle and single one electric fencing for a neighbour, like, um, two of us do it a day. Um, and
0: yeah, now they've got to train their cattle to get used to all the stuff that we're trying to teach them. And yeah, very economical. Mm-hmm. Don't build any more infrastructure than you have to. So weed laden, like star dropper, about every 10-15 metres, depending on the terrain. Pine um, post on each end, those struts similarly.
2: Just run it straight. So what's straight. more important is the stock handling and stuff yeah. mm-hmm. you put in there. You can and move every time you move, stock, you settle it. Working on that new country, lays be all over like a night yeah.
1: hustle. are only ever psychological barriers. So whatever you do. Mm-hmm. Any what other questions? Do
0: you um do you use dogs to protect your crops, or do you lock the pens at night?
1: Or uh, the so the white birds that we run are. They're always in the pens, and the pens are moved every day. Um, and then we have heritage birds in netting. We never have a problem with the netting. Foxes still get the birds out of the pens. They dig under really easily. We've got sandy soils. Yeah, the dogs definitely help, but...
0: So you've got you've got marimers?
1: Yeah, we do. We've got two marimers. So
0: in your rotations, the challenge for us at the moment is um, our dogs don't like sheep, even though they've looked after sheep before. Because they love the chickens and so we try and rotate things but it, it, everything's chaotic. Whenever we try and integrate anything and there's the sheep in here, but it they, they trying to do this other paddock and they store, you know. The dogs won't let them to the water point or you know, like is there a way we can get everyone to be friends? <laughs> 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 because really we're locking up, we're locking up
2: we're up land to one so we really, you know. I don't know. We, I've always used um, working dogs. I've never had um, the ones that guard dog type dogs, yes. only with working dogs. But, uh, look, I think that the main thing is that any time you start putting different classes of stock together or different species together, it just takes time to break through barriers. And the, the person is the one that helps that to work. So you have to get there, get the minds right of everybody that's there and so you're going to have to work on the dog's mind obviously to let others come in to drink and I'm, uh, I'm not quite sure how you're going to do that. But um, yeah, look, it's all about the stock handling so that, the, the trick will be in there in getting those dogs to, to do that but it might take you going in there and teaching the dog the respect of the sheep going in.
1: I guess the only other thing, you know, try and repair your dogs a bit with the sheep I don't know if you've got any electro netting handy, but put your she- bring your sheep into the chicken paddock, put your dogs in some netting within the paddock as well, and you know just exposure therapy, right? Yeah, the dogs, we did try, we, we had
0: the netting live, and the dogs just went straight. They just get shocked. They just walked straight over it, like, you know. They just
3: don't
1: like, what well, Diana does. But we do
0: want them with the chicken, so I think we need to do the same thing with the sheep.
1: No, you, you, you either need more juice through your fence, or you need wet dogs, or you know, and, like, they're very well integrated. No, seriously, because ours wants to touch the fence as well, yeah. and it's yeah problematic. They need to, like, they then you get a better shot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you now, nah. So I might have missed that part, but just wondering, you were talking
0: about your different costs. You know, your um, variable versus fixing. Have you done any um, modelling as to you know you <laughs> In business for a few years now, you've got a handle of, of your costs. Have you kind of done some modelling over, you know, is there kind of sweet spot or, you know, that there is a more intuitive feel about where you want to be heading? What kind of size?
1: I think where we're at now or slightly higher is pretty sweet because if we take too much, if, if so, we're sort of. 300 white birds, and the idea being we sort of do that plus another, say, 100 heritage birds in a week. That's not where we're at now, but sort of where we'd like to be, and see how that feels for a while. That's good transport efficiency. Um, the other thing about these, sort of, if you if you plot these cost curves over scale, um, variable cost curves over scale, you've got to keep in mind that at certain points you have big. Jumps and drops with infrastructure. So if we get too much bigger than that, we need a truck, right? And all of a sudden, we're going to actually we're going to scale up and make less money per bird because of that jump and those sort of aspects. So I feel like where we're at about now is is pretty good. Uh, We've managed to pick up quite a few efficiencies of scale. Um, You know, there's also how many how many birds can the market bear and all of those sort of issues as as well. That's a sort of a separate discussion. But I think kind of where we're at is good and there's a lot we can tinker with. For for instance, like we aim for a 1.8 to 2.2 kilo bird, roughly, um, as our standard sort of thing. Well, whether we... If if we raised all 1.8 or all 2.2 kilo birds for a year, that would be... a about a 60 grand difference in our profit. Like, it's radical. So, we've got... Yeah, so, if you know, if 100... To put 100 gram on, grams on a bird for us at a 2.3 feed conversion ratio, you know, that costs us about... With our feed, it costs about $1.25. Sorry. It costs us about 25 cents um, to, to put that 100 grams on. That 100 grams earns us about a dollar 25. So, you know, like, who? Where else do you get a 300% return on, a, on an investment? Like that feed, is you know an incredibly good investment because all the other costs are pretty much the same. Slight labor cost of maybe keeping them an extra week older. Um, so yeah, if if I could only sell 2.2 2 kilo birds, tinker our system so that's what all of our clients wanted, and I could find a way to do that with the production system, you know. Like, that, it almost pay, it's almost like it's a full-time yeah. salary in getting that right, you know? So we've got a big master spreadsheet that allows us to tinker with all of those different variables, feed conversion, carcass weight size, labour costs, all the different things, and I spent ages building that spreadsheet and then playing with the different variables and different, you can punch in scales and stuff. And just seeing where the drivers, like where the key drivers were, and that was a very valuable exercise because I never expected some of the things that I discovered. Yeah, I reckon I
3: reckon a lot could be learned, you know, and applied to the market gardening
0: world in in respect of that. I think obviously you've got a really good handle on your costs and cost curves and things. I think yeah, that kind of knowledge is is invaluable
2: no matter what kind of enterprise. So what is a good living? Um, to define that. Is, it, is sixty grand enough for somebody to do that? Are you? Or is it? If, if, if is that with both partners working? Or is a hundred more like it than 91 one? So it, in the book that uh, published in c the eight in there we found are somewhere between fifteen and
4: a hundred grand. Um, that's like after all costs and taxes, that's that's what they are be on. Um, and a lot of their needs are being paid paid for by the farm. So it's actually quite a lot more than that would like um, city salary. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and broadly speaking, amongst the small scale farmers we work with all the time, that 50 to 100 seems to be the sweet spot where everybody is happy. That's the income yeah. that we want. Yeah. Like my farm, we're very happy. We're, we're at 100,000 income after everything. And we think that's fantastic.
2: Well, that's
1: cool. what I was trying to work on, was that in Ireland, which is um, yeah, stans. I, I think that's a great point about the farm taking care of a whole lot of other things. Yeah. But, you know, and um, there's always like, yeah. you know, I, I try and be disciplined because I want the figures to be accurate, so i back to most of the sure. cash in the market. But you've always got a bit of a walk around, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's all <laughs> <laughs> sorts of like, little <laughs> things that sort of you know, <laughs> help. Oh, to, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs>
4: <laughs>
1: Sorry. Yeah. Oh, I'm just going back to the Sorry. Yeah. Um, look, I'm, I sort of made this point briefly yesterday in the tour, and um, I don't. I'm not ready to take on another whole another business that's a, of a totally different sort and have a whole another client base and whatnot to run a run an abattoir, and I'm not even sure if I did I could process for less than we're paying now. Like the blokes that we use, they're pretty efficient and they do runs of a couple of thousand birds with one clean down, you know. I mean, if we're doing a big, we're doing a clean down for 200 birds and fumbling about and buggering some things up, let alone buggering up other people's birds if we're trying to process for other people. So, look, right now, um, the $3.50 Per bird, it costs us to process, and the couple of dollars to take them up there is sort of money well spent for us. Like, I don't feel like that's where our low hanging fruit is, where we want to go at the moment. Maybe if we got to the five or six hundred bird a week mark, and I was starting to get you know, really getting kept awake at night by the abattoir bill, um, we could look at it. Um, but at the moment, I'm really happy that someone else has to worry about people turning up to the abattoir to cut heads off. Yeah, no, fair enough.
4: That, that's a good answer. Tom, can I make a comment on that question? The biggest risk we have in South Australia and most of the places around Australia is actually ensuring these abattoirs exist, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. what would happen if they shut down tomorrow?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah that, 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 is that is an extremely good hard. point. We are at a very fragile point in the South Australian poultry industry, because we have one option only, um, and yeah, like if that bugger's up, then it's... Yeah, that's a, bi- it's a big problem. And, that, like, that says a lot about the structure of the poultry industry, right? Like, it says a lot that our piddly little business at 300 birds a week, we're, like... I think we might be the, the second biggest independent poultry, like, che- meat bird producer in South Australia. Like, that's ridiculous, you know? We should be the 50th biggest, you know? It's just... it, it is It is crazy, but the big guys own all the... You know, they own all the infrastructure, they've got all the markets, it costs them 15 cents a bird to process, so they do it mechanically. Um, it's such a top heavy industry. But South Australia is
2: really um, in a very positive space in terms of all the macro abattoirs or smaller abattoirs, of large stock and sheep and that. That's true. But you don't have so much anymore in New South Wales and, and Queensland and stuff, it's really difficult to get those sort of stuff. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, it's a bit off topic, but
4: I was interested um, in the, the Lands market, which is the, it's sort of being run on an HM focus, but it's, it's ecological verification. So it's it's kind of like it's new form of certification that they're bringing out. And I just wonder when we're talking about like ecosystem services and adding value, whether you see that as a potential income to farmers. I mean, just it's just sort of going that direction particularly with livestock. I feel.
2: I've got to be careful what I say because I'm in the holistic movement. I am a certified educator, have been for a long time. So, in with the land to marketing, look, I think that's the kind of thing that'll give a huge advantage to all sorts of movement for producers. My worries are a the expense of doing it. A lot of you who producing already beef, sheep, meat, chalk, etc your name is what counts, it counts a lot more already than any certification process. And then it's also a little bit out of date where all they're really interested in is organic matter on the soil surface and all of us now know that the soils grow, like Walter would have talked this morning all about that, soils grow from what happens underground in plants, it builds from underground upwards, it doesn't actually build from the top down. and it 's just so often the case that the moment everybody starts to catch onto a thing they 're catching on to the old technology or older thinking in it, which with it leaves another big job for the wizards out there, like Walter and christine Jones and you know in the grazing world i 'm pushing a barrow a lot of the time by myself because a lot of these a lot of the industry is left behind now thinking that it 's all about soil cover so Hopefully that'll change over time, but a damn good idea, I think, to get something like that going. But the expense of it may leave a lot of the small producers out.
1: I'll just say one very quick thing, because we're we're a producer that's um, signed up for Land & Market. It's it's very expensive. Um, I think that the information that it helps you gather is potentially really significant in helping you do a bit of ecological accounting that you can then use for your marketing. If you're going to expect to get paid anything in the next, some, you know, any time in the next five years for having their badge on your product, I think you're dreaming.
0: Just another question. We, um, like your your discussion around slaughtering your hens, I suppose we're having the same discussion around feed. Um, And the feed prices have gone up particularly in the last year. And also the quality, I think, of the feed has been pretty crappy. Um, and as a farmer currently produces, there's a cropping farm already, um, there's a conversation around growing our own feed. Um, have, do you guys know anyone who does that? And, like, you know, is it worth a headache? Or is it worth the work? What you know really looking at? That?
1: Oh, look, it, I said before, our our biggest ecological stuff up is The feed we buy it's conventionally grown it's local it's certified non-gmo but it's you know it's conventionally grown grain um so you know regenerative agriculture right we're regenerating our farm and buggering something else up you know with grain growing um we're not under any illusions of that i'd love to grow our own feed i'd love for it to have the sort of nutritional integrity that walter talked about before because we're growing it in a way which really fosters and and builds um, the microbial relationships which he's talking about.